0: sunflowerofpeace.com Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this program, the Commonwealth Club of California, on challenges and opportunities facing the Asian American and Native Hawaiian Islander, Pacific Islander communities. I'm Dennis Wu, past chair of the Commonwealth Club, board of directors, governors, current chair of SF Cause and your chair for today's program. Today's program is with Erica Morasuko, Deputy Assistant to President Biden and White House Senior Liaison for Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Communities, and Chris Takai, Executive Director, White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. This program it's being held in partnership with SF Cause, San Francisco Community Alliance for Unity, Safety, and Education. Thank you to everyone coming out this afternoon, and thank you to all of you viewing this program live, online. A reminder, please be sure to turn off all technology, anything that buzzes, beats, lights up, Everyone in this room and online would appreciate it. I got rid of my phone. A reminder that we welcome your questions. Question cards will be collected throughout the program. And for those of you online, please use the chat feature in YouTube to share your questions. And we'll be sure the moderator gets these as well. For those of you who... Not be familiar with question cards, they're on your seat, and there'll be other cards that will be passed around. Right? This is an example of them. Now, I'm pleased to introduce our guest this afternoon. Moderating today's program is Julian Chang, a community affairs specialist with a proven track record of creating linkages between donors, beneficiaries, community stakeholders, and public officials. His expertise include representing global Fortune 25 companies in matching corporate donors and not-for-profits to develop win-win alliances and partnerships. Julian will be leading the discussion today with our special guests Erica Marasuko and Krista Kai. And now, I would like to welcome up to the World
0: Club stage. Welcome. Thank you, Dennis. Good afternoon. I'm Julian Chang, your moderator for today's program. It's my pleasure to be back at the Commonwealth Club and welcome, especially Erica and Crystal to San Francisco on such a beautiful day. Erica Moritsugu serves as the deputy assistant to the president and and for the AA and NHPI communities. She's also senior liaison in the White House. Crystal Ka'ai is the executive director of the White House Initiative on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. Together, they engage our AAN and communities, leaders and also organizers in issues such as safety, justice, inclusion, and opportunity through a whole of government approach that is crucial to our understanding of racial and social equity in today's America. I will want to say that it's my personal pleasure to meet um, them because we've been working together over Zoom for the last little bit in COVID. So it's wonderful to be able to be together. Now, before we get into the questions that I have for you and that the audience has for you, I'd like to hear a little bit about the um, priorities that you have.
3: Julian, thank you. Dennis? Dennis? Thank you. You all are leaders amongst leaders, the SFA Cause team and Commonwealth Club. Thank you for welcoming me back. This is my, my second tour, this one in person. The last one was virtual due to the pandemic last September, and it's an honor to, honor to be back here with you all. Um, as, as Juliana mentioned, um, I'm Eric Moritzu. I'm one of the president's deputies, um, and I serve as the first ever Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander senior liaison in the West Wing, which um, is the honor um, I get to serve to not create, create anything, but to, to build on and expand on the President and the Vice President's commitment to our con- um, to our communities that pre-existed long before they were sworn in. Um, and so this is an honor to be able to, to keep building on that and making good and demonstrate and continue to advancing um, the priority that the President and the Vice President place on our communities. Um, internally, my role is to make sure that the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander perspectives goals, hopes, and the challenges are brought to bear and taken into consideration as we work across all policy areas and all political areas. Um, Externally, um, I serve as not just the face of the administration coming out to wonderful events like this, um, to meet with wonderful community leaders and community members like you, um, but also to make sure that there's a dynamic kind of information loop, um, that when we're trying to be as inclusive and impactful as possible in the policy and political considerations that we make in the West Wing, that it's informed by and in real time updated with the needs, um, and, the needs um, and the challenges and your viewpoints as community members. Community leader local community leaders are also community members. And I think Crystal would agree, since we both had our start in the Congress, we would not want to do this without you. Um, and so I take my charge very seriously to make sure that we don't just recognize in Washington, D.C., the richness and diversity of our Asian American and Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities, but that we're also listening and hearing and seeing and value the diverse and rich experiences. Um, I don't do this work alone, I do it in close partnership with my very dear friend and colleague, Crystal Kai, who runs our initiative and our President's Advisory Commission. Um, We also work closely with Howard O., who directs our Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander outreach from the Office of Public Engagement at the White House. I also have the benefit of working across um, all components within the White House and in the interagency process um, with... um, all of the policy councils in the White House and all of the support components like intergovernmental affairs so that I can interact with local um, and state leaders um, with um, congressional affairs um, so that we can interact with the Federal Congress, with comms um, and and digital to make sure that we're communicating as effectively as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that brings us back, well, me virtual, back to San Francisco, back to the Commonwealth Club, is because of the spike in anti-Asian hate and violence, which is, I think, top of mind for many of us, uh, because it's wrapped up in this um, large kind of canvas of, of what it looks like to live through and endure the pandemic and what post-pandemic world looks like when the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities have been hit so hard, not just in terms of the public health impacts that all communities have faced, but the rise of anti-Asian hate and violence, coupled with the disproportionate impact that the economic crisis has had on our small businesses in our communities. And um, we um, have the benefit of a president and a vice president who who truly see this, and and that is our charge collectively and one of the reasons why it's so important for us to be able to be in community with each other and in close conversations. So with that, I will turn it over to friends and colleagues.
1: Thank you, Erica, and uh, thank you, Dennis. Thank you to um, SF Cause and the Commonwealth Club for hosting us today. Um, my name is Crystal Ka'ai, and I'm the Executive Director of the White House Initiative on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders, or what we call P for short, um, as well as the President's Advisory Commission on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. And Erica did a really great job outlining, I think, for you know, we are so fortunate under this. Uh, administration, the Biden-Harris administration, um, to really have leadership from the very top who truly see our Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities and who value um, input from our communities and want to ensure that as we talk about equity and ensuring that um, traditionally overlooked and underserved communities are included um, in the work of our federal government, that we are truly um, including all communities, including the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander Population. And so our White House initiative, um, unlike Erica's historic role, our our White House initiative has actually existed for over two decades. It was first created. In 1999 um, under the Clinton administration, and so it has existed um, for over 20 years, and currently we were reauthorized and reinvigorated last May through the signing of Executive Order 14031 um, that President Biden signed in um, May of last year during AA and NHPI Heritage Month, and that Executive Order um, reestablished but also reinvigorated and expanded this initiative, and so for the first time in history, um, Native Hawaiians are explicitly named and included included in the executive order. And our White House initiative um, includes uh, three major components. It includes our um, federal interagency working group, which is comprised of over um, 40 uh, federal departments and agencies that collectively work together to ensure that we are able to coordinate across the entirety of the federal government um, to advance equity, justice, and opportunity for our Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities. It also includes a regional network comprised of over 400 federal officials, across the country based in our 10 federal regions um, who are really our boots on the ground and help to ensure that um, local communities all across the country are connected directly with the federal government um, and with federal resources. And actually just yesterday I was in Los Angeles where we did a roundtable where we were able to bring together community leaders, um, state and local uh, officials, as well as our federal government um, officials to be able to share resources. And and we're so, again, so honored to be here in San Francisco to be able to to connect directly with all of you, too, because so much of our work cannot happen without the input and direct engagement of local communities on the ground. It's so important for us to be able to hear from you, um, to be able to elevate um, issues impacting our communities really at the highest levels, and to ensure that the federal government is accessible and responsive um, to the diverse needs of our communities. And so that is um, a big part of the work that we are doing through our regional network apparatus um, of our federal officials who are based all across the country um, from, our, you know, from Hawaii and our Pacific Islands uh, to our East Coast and everywhere in between. Um, and then lastly, we have our President's Advisory Commission on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. And that entity um, is comprised of 25 officials who were appointed by the President um, to really serve as a way to um, provide uh, independent recommendations to the President on ways to um, advance opportunities for our Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities. And it does include um, several uh, commissioners from uh, California, including a, a handful from the Bay Area. So we're really um, grateful for their expertise that they provide to us in terms of um, you know, ways that we can better really address some of the challenges and barriers that have long persisted in our communities. Um, that is such an important work so Such important work to do now more than ever. And Erica mentioned, you know, the alarming rise in anti-Asian hate we have seen over the course of the pandemic. And also just knowing that so many um, longstanding inequities have been truly exacerbated over the past two years, whether we're talking about health disparities, economic um, disparities, educational disparities, housing, so many of these challenges have really been laid bare over the past um, nearly two and a half years. And so it is so important now more than ever that we are truly responsive as we're looking 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 to, um, on our ongoing, you know, relief and recovery efforts for the pandemic, that we are truly inclusive of our diverse Asian American Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities and can ensure that they have a voice in our federal government.
0: Thank you, Erica and Crystal. That was really comprehensive. Um, I know that, like me, you probably have questions. And there are um, volunteers who will receive your questions. If you write your questions down, she will bring it up to me and I'll sort through them. I can't guarantee you I will get through all of them. If you're online, you're welcome to put it in the chat, and then it'll be printed out and sent up. Uh, time permitting, hopefully we'll get to as many questions as we can. You mentioned anti-Asian hate. You mentioned uh, ANHPI representation, and you also mentioned economic recovery from COVID, which is, are, are all the 3 topics broad areas that we want to cover today. Um, Specifically, we want to hear from you who can help, what resources are out there, how do we access those resources if we are a member of an organization or if we're an individual or a business owner. And so these are the really practical things that uh, it within the spirit of the Commonwealth Club because it started off as a forum to share information among the agricultural community to find best practices. And so we are right in the wheelhouse of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. I want to start off by something that is dear to my heart. Um, two weeks ago, there was the one year anniversary of the tragic killings of Asian women in Atlanta um, Those killings represent an emotional response that we are having in America Um, from San Francisco to New York, from the north to the south of unsafety and feeling like we cannot go out to shop. Or even when we go out to shop, we might be uh, mugged here in San Francisco just a couple of days ago on Stockton Street. An elderly woman had her phone snatched away from her. Two very brave people chase down and recover the phone and then help the police um, apprehend that uh, that perpetrator. But it brings to. Mind what federal resources do you have? Can you please talk about the Office of Justice Programs, for example, as one of the resources that we can access?
1: Sure. So um, yes, the Department of Justice has been uh, largely leading the efforts from the federal government to address this rise in anti-Asian hate and hate crimes and I had mentioned our federal interagency working group through the White House Initiative we are working very closely with um, Department of Justice and including the um, Bureau, uh, or sorry OJP, you mentioned the Office of Justice Programs. Um, they have a Bureau of uh, Justice Statistics and so through that Bureau um, they actually conduct a National Crime Victimization Survey which is um, our nation's primary source of information on criminal victimization and they also have a number of um, grants and other other just technical assistance resources that they provide to states and localities um, to really ensure that we are able to address, um, you know, hate crimes uh, impacting our communities. And so um, one of their, um, you know, one of the, grants that they have is specifically for law enforcement prosecution training and and resources, um, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. hate crimes program. And so that program supports state, local, and tribal uh, law enforcement and prosecution agencies and their partners in conducting outreach, um, education, and also other um, forms of engagement with local communities. They also have um, other grants, the Edward Bryn Memorial Justice Assistance Grant Program um, that provides funding to support um, a range of criminal justice programming including those that combat hate crimes and i also know that um, more recently uh, in the the omnibus that the president um, signed for uh, funding that there was also uh, funds that were provided specifically for grants to community-based organizations and so that has yet to be administered but the uh, ojp is working right now to um, be able to hopefully um distribute those funds in the future. And I know that was a big request we received from community leaders, not just having it go to funding over to law enforcement, but also going directly into the communities, knowing that so many of our nonprofit organizations um, and other community-based organizations have really stepped up over the course of the pandemic um, to provide that safety for our communities, knowing that so many, unfortunately, don't feel comfortable going to law enforcement. So it is really important to also ensure that we're funding um, not just our state and local law enforcement agencies, but also our community-based organizations um, directly on the ground, who we know are trusted resources um, for so many within the Asian-American community. Um, And it's so important. Again, they're providing language assistance. They're providing cultural competency um, on ways to address this really um, alarming surge in anti-Asian hate we have witnessed over the course of the pandemic.
0: So what I hear you saying is that not only are you just training the law enforcement Um, with statistics and and other tools, but also it trickles down to individuals by going to trusted community members, and that's part of what's going to help them feel a little bit safer. But part of the emotional toll is that feeling of uncertainty. So when you're talking about the emotional effect of public safety, what can people do, especially with the federal government, to reach out to, to boost that, feeling of well-being?
3: The first thing I would say is to be able to name and acknowledge and honor that pain. Um, I mean, San Francisco Police had just released a couple of months ago their data for reported hate crimes for the last calendar year was a 567% increase. And the toll that takes on our psyches when we worry about our, the treasures of our community, our elders and our children... Um, being able to operate and live their lives in public spaces. When you look at the hate crime statistics that are reported to the FBI, most of the hate crimes that are reported, and again I emphasize reported because these are by no means comprehensive um, for reasons that we can talk about um, I could talk about it for a really, really long time i 've spent a couple of decades talking about it. Um, you know that, that these are folks who are just living their everyday lives, going shopping, going to school, going to mm-hmm. work, being at work um, and 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 having to isolate ourselves is a deep impact that I think that our community would be well served to be able to acknowledge and honor and be able to speak about a little bit more openly because that's where the healing begins. We're in grief. We're in trauma. And how do you turn the page? Um, in, in that, from 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 that perspective, um, you know, one of the things that I also hope that you know the community can take a little solace in, while again we are in the throes of trauma. Every individualized incident of hate or murder that's reported in the press definitely impacts the family and the local community, but it also has these national reverberations of reinforcing how unsafe we feel and how little security we feel even just living our lives with our family in society. And so for that, you know, again, I take some... Confidence in a lot of the accomplishments and strides that we've taken in the past year since the Biden-Harris administration has been in office um, with their leadership, understanding their commitment to our communities to be able to ensure the safety and security that we should expect and I think that we can now hope for. Um, On the first week in office, they they issued a presidential memorandum condemning racism, intolerance and xenophobia against the Asian-American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community and all of government. Approach on the first week in office, um, he signed the um, Hate Crimes, uh, the COVID 19 Hate Crimes Act that was sponsored by Senator Hirono and Representative Grace Meng a year before, a year before it was passed. It was passed on a bipartisan basis after the Atlantis spa murders because it had captured the imaginations and planted the need, the necessity of having stronger hate crimes um, disciplines um, because of the trauma that our community was facing with these iterative and horrific examples of of murders and violence. We're investing in research to examine both the causes of and the solutions for the hate. We're translating more materials into in-language. I mean, one piece that that would be lost inside the Beltway or for our agencies is that to ensure safety and security, sometimes language access could be the matter of life and death. If you don't know who to call, if you don't know who to trust, or if you call somebody and you're on hold, for 15 minutes because you cannot communicate effectively. Um, Crystal described the the emboldening and the, the reinvigoration of, of CSRS, the CRS programs. Um, and I was wondering if I could just double down on one other thing, which is just last month, the president made it very, very clear as one of his platform pillar um, national unity agendas and investment in the mental health crisis that our nation is suffering. Um, he made it a high priority in the State of the Union. Um, he's going commit. He's committed to working with our partners, um, both in community and in the government, state, local, and federal partners, to ensure that there's more supply diversity um, for these kinds of commitments and resources. And it includes, I, mean, I wrote it down because there's a lot, $700 million in behavioral health programs, $225 million in um HHS awards to train folks to serve and reach traditionally disadvantaged communities um, and more community-based mobile crisis um, representative services, which are the cultural competency that I think for our community in particular, we really need to be cautious and sensitive to how to crack crack the code, to be able to talk about these things openly and feel safe in safe spaces to do that. Um, these are just a couple of examples of, of resources that are online, but it is by no means um, over and done with. We have so much work to do.
0: So some of the resources you mentioned uh, that I heard were, was that there's an office for victims of crime and that there is an office called the Community Relations Service of the Justice Department. How do those differ, and how does someone who has experienced or whose grandparent or friend has experienced crime as a victim access those?
3: So I would actually... um say that most most of these the grant funding and the programs and the programming that CRS and the FBI put online um, happen at the local level in hopefully ideally in partnership with local community leaders and community based organizations um, and so there is um, Hopefully, this has been your observation and experience a greater presence of accessibility and knowledge about these programs and their availability. You know, another, again, just to reiterate, another example is the investment that the federal government is making in doing in language translations, the encouragement that we are implementing but not codifying to make sure that grant seekers, you know, build in translation and effective culturally competent community outreach mechanisms so that we're actually speaking in a trusted way from tr- through a trusted voice in a way that resonates so that people can take advantage of it. Crystal, I...
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think one thing, you know, that people don't realize, too, or may realize, but it's just how sprawling the federal government is. So even, a you know, department like the Department of Justice has many, um, you know, divisions within it and components. And so, um, you know, I think with the Community Relations Service, where they differ from uh, other entities like the FBI, which are also within the DOJ, is that they are really are, you know, uh, boots on the ground, and actually for Region 9 here in Northern California, um, one of our leads, and I'm not sure if he's in the audience still or not, but um, is actually from CRS within DOJ, and so he um, does a lot of our outreach and engagement here in the in the Bay Area, and it's so important for people not to just go to the FBI, because we know unfortunately a lot of our communities are hesitant to, to report to law enforcement um, you know, due to a number of reasons, whether they're um, you know, maybe undocumented and are afraid to come forward, or just don't feel comfortable Um, working directly with law enforcement, but other components of DOJ, like the Community Relations Services, really help to provide those, um, you know, resources directly in community, in a trusted space, where you're not going to um, law enforcement necessarily, but still able to have those conversations, um, have resources shared, and so, um, you know, that is, I think, people should see uh, the Department of Justice's CRS as a tool, as a, you know, resource to them, as a way to be able to report um, the the concerns that they're feeling, to report hate crimes, um, and also to, to learn more about some of the federal resources. And then with the, um, you know, Office of Justice Programs, a lot of that is more kind of administering our federal, how do we, okay, once we have funding approved by Congress, how do we actually administer that funding um, directly to state and local, uh, you know, law enforcement, to uh, community organizations if there are grants available. So that's kind of the more of a technical role that they play in really being able to ensure that funding is um, getting out really, you know, from the federal government into um, state and local communities across the
0: Let's talk about that. Okay. So you've mentioned that there's a lot of funding that's going uh, forward, which we're grateful for. However, I think that there is among some um, a feeling that there is a mainstream funding pot of a lot of money. And then there's another funding pot for minorities or people of color. And so we're as people of color fighting the a and HPI community is fighting with other communities of color for this limited smaller pot of money. Is that true?
3: Do you mind if I start? Go ahead. Uh, Cause I feel strongly about this in terms of like the scarcity mentality that communities of color, um, seem to harbor in terms of a false narrative that doesn't need to exist. Um, I mean, yes. Um, You know, money is fungible, but it's also finite. Um, But common cause and coalition with other communities of color is the way, is the path forward so that it isn't, and you use this word, fight with each other yeah. and fight for funding out of that small pie like we need to expand the pie for sure and you also have uh more and more people like crystal and me making sure that the unique needs of the asian american native Hawaiian and pacific islander in the host of more you know traditionally marginalized and victimized and vulnerable populations are heard and tailored to um, i think that um if you were to zoom way out and look at The statistics, if we were just to look at hate crimes that are reported or hate incidents, which are not, you know, the the criminal penalty enhancement, but um, civil penalty um, um, for discrimination and hate that's expressed through like education and housing, um, that we are not alone and we are stronger together. And banding together and recognizing those commonalities while also naming the differences and the uniqueness and tailoring those programs is um, the way that it's always worked best um, and I think is um, the pathway for a more robust um, future, too. Yeah, I'll just add, I mean, I agree with Erica. It's,
1: you know, it is not productive to think of this as a scarcity mentality. Um, And and this administration has really prioritized equity across the board for all communities, including ours. So, you know, when Erica talked about, yes, there is finite funding, but we have expanded the pot of funding across the board. And, you know, this is not just for, um, you know, we have to fight against other communities of color for scarce funding. It is really when we're talking about um, how do we... Ensure safety for Americans. We're talking about all Americans, and so um, I just wanted to flag too. I think coalition building is so important. Um, in our, we have our White House initiative on Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders, but we also have sister initiatives um, in the Black. Um, Latinx as well as um, Native American communities, and we work very closely together because we find that more often than not, a lot of the same challenges that we are seeing in the Asian American Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander community, as Erica mentioned, are also being faced by other communities, and so, um, you know, where we can work together collectively um, to ensure that we're uplifting our collective concerns um, and able to get, you know, funding tied to that, that will help all of our communities and uplift all of us. That is something we look to do. And then, of course, where we have unique circumstances like what we are seeing with this rise in anti-Asian hate, making sure that we also have broader partners who are going to help us to elevate um, our concerns and our voices at the highest levels and ensure that we have that, again, that collaboration, that support, um, that allyship, I think, is so critical. And it's something that we are um, very intentionally working on through the federal government.
0: One of the commonalities that cuts across all communities, regardless of color, is gun violence. And um, that obviously plays into the feeling of mental stress and mental health after lockdown. It's interesting. If you look at the statistics during strict lockdown, gun violence was quite low or mass shootings was quite low. And then all of a sudden it it has come back. Can you address what efforts can we do across communities to build safety, especially on this one issue of gun violence?
3: It's, it's, um, interesting that you raised that, because um, when Crystal and I were in Atlanta with the local community leaders and some of the families' victims, um, and we actually deliberately tried to—our intentionality in going there was not to be, you know, Washington, D.C. politicos making, you know, broad policy speeches, because, again, this is a community that is still in trauma. This is—these are families who are still mourning, and yet— using their voices with generosity and courage to share their stories so that these things don't happen again. Mental health and gun violence were things that the families raised with us because of the tragic consequences that we see, because there are root causes that, if addressed properly, wouldn't lead to the deadly consequences and this ex-post kind of handing and tearing hair out, Um, which is why, you know, from from the administration's perspective, um, this is a top priority of the presidents. Um, President Biden has done more in his one year in office through executive order and executive actions than um, any president. You know, top lines, and again, I wrote this down because um, there's a lot, and so I'm not going to give you the laundry list of it, but, you know, through the American Rescue Plan, we had $350 billion to state and local governments for um, um, community-oriented policing. Health and Human Services was working on um, a way to get Medicaid reimbursements for um, community violence interventions. The Department of Justice, FBI, um, ATF, DEA and Marshal Service are coordinating closely and intentionally with our instruction from headquarters with state and local um, law enforcement. Um, AFT is um, working on combating and getting rid of ghost guns, which I think we've just seen another de- deadly consequence of, of the way those, those move. The Department of Justice is developing um, a red flag program so that people who are already vulnerable and identifiable as at risk um, do not lay their hands on guns. Um, there's going to be zero tolerance for rogue gun dealers. And um, we're working with the Veterans Affairs um, Department um, on a public education campaign about the safe storage of firearms in in homes and in public spaces. Um, All that said, we are still calling upon the Congress to act to make sure that um, criminals do not get their hands on guns and that weapons of war are not on our streets.
0: I'm going to talk about economic recovery. Um, a little bit. The economic uh, bit consequences of the COVID pandemic are really devastating on some of our Asian-American um, commerce districts and small businesses. Uh, the Fed has now announced that they're going to rebalance their balance sheet and they're going to stop um, support for um, that they had previously given for over the last two years making it imperative for these businesses to be able to stand on their own if they can. Um, this economic recovery has got to impact all of us, including a really tight labor force or, or very, um, and dual working families especially. And it impacts both economic and um, mental health. So I'd like you please to tell us What are the financial resources like grants or loans that small businesses can get that will help them now? Are there names that you can give to people who they can call and say, hey, I need this help. And what programs are there now? Because with the announcement that the support seems to be lessening from the federal government, whether it's from the Fed or somebody else, there's that perception that says, "Okay, now I've got to either sink or swim. Is there support?
3: Yeah, I mean, and one of the things that I hear about a lot when I work on equitable economic um, policies um, for the Asian-American and Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community, and again, this is in the broader context of the overarching cornerstone program that we have nationally that you hear about on national you know, cable news or, or things of that nature, um, but to make sure that it's specific to, tailored to, and available and accessible to Asian-American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander business owners and entrepreneurs, Um, One of the things that's notable to me is how many people say PPP, the um, Paycheck Protection um, Program, or the Restaurant Revitalization Investment Program that was enacted um, very early in, in President Biden's term, that it was a lifeline, that it saved their businesses. And yet the flip side of that are the stories of folks who were not able to stay in business for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with, you know, I don't, I'm not going to bore you all with, like, you know, appropriations versus authorizations and, you know, whatever, whatever the Fed lending facility is um, or the political will, but, th- but problems that predated, again, predated the pandemic, a lack of financial literacy, a lack of banking um, um, relationships that would have made it easier for this first-in-line um, programming. Now, while, you know, there's no PPP or Restaurant Revitalization Act currently um, open for... Um, Application The Small Business Administration does have a chart that helps um, entrepreneurs and small business owners navigate which programs they are available for. There are 7A loans, there are a lot of other programs that are online, um, and they also are granting um, you know, loan forgiveness for both um, the PPP program um, and the EIDL program, the Economic Injury Distress. Loan program. Thank you. Um, I, I did an acronym with that, um, having to look it up. Um, And there are also, um, you know, a new pilot, which is a a kind of a a sample programming for community navigators through the SBA, through the Small Business Administration, where um, selected groups with that are deep within community um, are empowered to basically represent and provide access to and a point of entry to what the federal programming looks like for grant making Um, the MBDA the the um, minority business minority development. business development agency. I'm such a bad vet. I, I can't do the acronyms. Um, also, you know, as a point of entry deep in communities um, for small businesses to understand and appreciate and access and and um, and succeed with. Um, with programming and, and for the Asian American, Native, Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community, MBDA, MDBA, um, ha- you know, reached 500 AN and HPI entrepreneurs last year and 400 young AAN and HPI entrepreneurs under existing programs. And so these are different, you know, touchstones and points of entry that we hope to make better known and better utilized and better resourced um, so that um, – these aren't just programs that get thrown out um, through Washington, D.C., but they're actually accessible and used. The utilization rate is something that um, the economic team and I have worked on a lot, and we've actually found ways to improve some of the programs because of these learnings.
0: Is that a fully funded program, the MDBA?
3: It um, MBDA. Um, so, so it, it's, it's, um, it's been reauthorized and we are waiting for, um, you know, fresh authorizations to keep it expanded. It's actually been, um, in the last bill, uh, the new law has established it on a permanent basis instead of having to be reauthorized periodically. It's also elevated the leadership to a Senate confirmed undersecretary at the Department of Commerce.
0: So it's pretty, pretty permanent. Then. Yeah. Pretty okay.
3: permanent. Let me just chime in really quick too on
1: just... For- everything Erica said is, you know, true. So there are so many resources at the federal government in terms of funding, as well as just also initiatives, um, ways to support small businesses and local communities. And we know that our small businesses in particular took a really hard hit throughout COVID because long before we even had our first confirmed COVID case in America, and before we saw, you know, saw lockdowns and um, closures, our businesses were being impacted because of misconceptions about how the virus was, trans, uh, you know, transmitted at the time. We didn't really know much about about it, but we started to hear in January of 2020, um, Asian American businesses being impacted because people were afraid to go there. They thought, you know, if you go to a Chinatown business that you're going to get COVID somehow because the virus came from China. And so that, you know, of course was not true, but in terms of like, that's, we learned later, that's not how the virus was transmitted, but people had all of these stereotypes about Asian Americans that we have seen, unfortunately, has really manifested in this um, increase in anti-Asian hate. But our businesses were impacted very early on in the pandemic um, and continue to face very devastating losses. And so um, to Erica's point, there are so many opportunities through the federal government. Um, A lot of legislation and funding was passed over the past two years to be able to provide um, resources directly into communities, including our small businesses. And I think one of the main goals that we have through the White House um, initiative, as well as with um, the role that Erica plays, is to ensure that our communities understand those programs and initiatives and what's available to them. And so, um, you know, through, I had mentioned our regional network, we have held several sessions here in Region 9, um, including in Northern California, where we've been able to share um, resources directly from the Small Business Administration, from other components like the Minority Business Development Agency, um, to ensure that our communities know about these programs. And it's not just COVID relief specific. There are other, as Erica mentioned, there are other loan programs and grants that are available that I think are unfortunately underutilized by our uh, communities because they don't know about them. And so we have really tried to do more to ensure that there is, um, greater awareness, but also that we're um, doing more to ensure that these are being done in a linguistically and culturally sensitive way, because we know that so many of our small business owners do not speak English, Um, you know, so we can't just blast something out in, you know, D.C. and in English and just assume they're going to read it in a press release. We really have to do that intentional engagement, um, working directly, providing the language translations, providing um, also the technical assistance that's needed so that these um, small businesses are not only aware, but can actually actively compete for some of this funding that's available. Um, and that is something that we are very committed to doing through our initiative.
0: So we're moving forward. I think one of the things this week, especially, uh, especially yesterday, is the the country has moved forward with the confirmation of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson as our justice next, just, justice, justice Jackson. Uh, um, and so that is a wonderful thing. This president has led by example in nominating and keeping a promise. Uh, of African-American justice on the Supreme Court. The two of you are obvious embodiments of a representation mindset. Yet across America, in businesses and in schools, there is a lack of representation in of ANHPA people in office, in the boardroom especially, in the C-suites, uh, which uh, decisions are being made uh, as heads of school, etc. What opportunities do you see at, with your national portfolio for AANHPI people to be involved in the federal government in, in trying to make this a better world? Not all of us can be associate justices of the Supreme Court, but um, what opportunities are there for AANHPI people? And especially in the legal field, when do we get an Asian American Supreme Court justice nominee?
3: So I know that this is um, actually part of the executive order that you're you're executing. Um, but if I could um, take a little bit of more of a top line piece of it. Sure. And first of all, like congratulations, America, um, we have got a historic, historic Supreme Court justice. And it was the work of coalition and heart and commitment Um our, our, our colleague Howard O. Oh and um, the Office of the Vice President was convening multiple time a week um, strategy sessions um, and information sharing sessions with Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander civil rights leaders several times a week because of their excitement for this historic nomination what it means to have somebody with that lived experience, with that diversity of experience, um, to place another woman. Now we're going to have a majority woman Supreme Court. For the first time ever. Um it was it's it's a it's a really heady day and um I'm here and not in the Rose Garden with Justice Jackson and the President. Um I'd rather be here because this is like super lovely. Um but <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll I'll watch I'll watch it on C SPAN later. Uh, which is almost the same thing. Um but I, I would also mention in terms of the pipeline, um, and this is little known just because um, you know, I'll I'll name names. Leader McConnell and and the former president had done so much um, aggressive work um, in in confirming judges under the last administration. One little-known fact is that this administration has confirmed more judges to the federal bench in a shorter period of time than some presidents have done their entire um, first terms in office. Um, And it includes district court members and appellate court members. 18% Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islanders, including multiple first-evers, not just, you know, the first half Japanese, half Latino to sit on a district court in Colorado, although that is true, Um, but the first, you know, Muslim, um, the first immigrants, um, um, just nationwide, Um, and, you know, our president loves to have, you know, be the one to shepherd first evers, but it's our vice president who says pretty soon we're going to run out of first evers and we don't ever have to talk about it again because it's a new standard operating procedure. Now, with respect to corporate America versus the federal government, um, I've, I've been in this business long enough, this business called policy and politics, to actually expect the private sector to lead. Um, and to show the art of the possible and build the data and build the business case for doing innovative things that the federal government is honestly just a little bit too clumsy um, or large to be able to accomplish. With respect to diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, the federal government is leading under President Biden and and Vice President um, Harris in terms of what it looks like to be a model employer. Um, And I'm very, very proud to be a part of that. And just speaking, um, um, you know, kind of more generally, this also helps us to understand and learn and build our coalition building muscle because we're in this together and a more diverse workforce creates. And I think for those of you in the private sector, you would agree. If you could put aside the bottom line in a quarter-to-quarterly basis, um, it produces a better product because of the tensions and the different viewpoints that were brought to bear. And that's what we're seeing in this government now. Um, I'm very, very proud um, of, the, of being a part of an administration that looks like America. That was the president's commitment. Um, and he is making good on it. Within the White House... 17% of White House officials identify as Asian American, Native One, and Pacific Islander. And that is compared to our almost 7% national census population. So we are far outperforming it. And this includes commissioned officers at the highest levels. Um, in the agencies, 15% of all agency appointees, and that's... My dear friend Crystal as well identify as Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander, fifteen percent compared to again a little bit less than seven percent of our national census population. Um and we also and these aren't just um so the models that we see are also in the type and visibility of 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 some of the models. Um we've got Vice President Harris. Need I say more? We also have a cabinet member in Ambassador Catherine Tai, who's the first Taiwanese, first Asian American woman to lead USTR. Um, Kieran Ahuja is the um, head. We have heads of agencies, Office of Public um, Personnel Management, managing, I think, one of the largest workforces in the nation. Um, Lena Khan is the chair of the um, Federal Trade Commission. Chantelle Wong is our ambassador to the Asian Development Bank. Um, Julie Su. Um, is our Deputy Secretary of the Department of Labor, proud Californian, um, and last week um, I was um, had the occasion to be at the swearing in of Nani Claretti as the Deputy Director of OMB of the Office of Management and Budget. So um, I think that in terms of um, DEIA diversity and recognizing and valuing it and putting it into action, I think it's time for the corporate America to catch up with the feds.
0: We are moving, um, we've already moved into some of the uh, questions that the audience has asked, and that was one of the, the questions okay. that was asked. Um, so we may, I'm trying to batch these um, as well as I can, but um, there may be a little bit of uh, jumping around on this, so I apologize for okay. that.
3: Okay, Crystal's so. here to answer the hard <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> <laughs> So
0: So um, from online, Are you concerned that the rise in Asian hate won't go down over time, that it is actually here to stay?
3: No, because it's not sustainable, it's not endurable, and it's not acceptable. The president has said that it will not stand. It is un-American, and it will (coughs) not stand. And we have um, some tools in place. Um, And and this is one of the challenges of of, um, this moment that we're in, because one of the one of the things that is very prominent in my thinking and the way that we bring it back and the way we talk about it in Washington D.C. amongst policymakers is that it's not an on-off switch. This is not a, a phenomenon that just turned on the first time somebody um, made a derogatory comment suggesting that the pandemic was um, sourced deliberately out of by a Chinese person. Um, one of the things that we need to acknowledge and recognize and educate our colleagues about and our our fellow citizens and our allies and our neighbors and our classmates is that um, this kind of hate and violence has predated the pandemic. It has been longstanding. It dates back to 1872 with the passage of the P- Page Act, which preceded the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is usually thought of as, as the first um, r- explicitly racist law on the books. But the Page Act actually was a combination of racism and misogyny where women of China, from China were prohibited broadly from immigrating to the United States because they were suspected to be dirty or prostitutes. And this is law. And, you you, you know, you look at the, the arc of history that's brought us to, let's say, the pandemic, and um, you, you see um, – over and over and over, like instances of this kind of hatred, discrimination, and violence. Some of it's state-sponsored, some of it sanctioned or looked the other way. Um, and it includes, um, you know, the incarceration of Japanese Americans in World War II. It includes the murder of Vincent Chen. It includes the mass murder of, of Southeast Asian children in Southern California. It, ensued, it includes um, mass murders of, of sick Americans.
0: So how do we prevent that sort of violence? I mean, obviously, the, Re- the Exclusion Act was repealed, so that's one way of taking it off the books. But is it coalition building with other communities of color? Is it uh, a massive training like we all have to do in corporate America uh, on DEI every day, every week? What, it, what does it take to prevent this sort of thing? And does our world stance towards China affect the perception of Americans domestically, uh, for AANHPI people.
1: So let me just say real quick, I think, you know, it's all of what Erica said is true. Part of it is we have, to, we have to teach people about our history, our contributions as a community to this country. And that's a big focus of our White House initiative. It is not just how do we deal with hate crimes or hate incidents after the fact, after people have been victimized and, uh, you know, or killed. How do we actually look at prevention as a, you know, proactive model? And also, you know, and a big part of that is not just looking at, okay, how do we build coalition, but also how do we build awareness of our communities, of our histories, and um, educate people so that we are truly included and that we belong um, in this country. And I think, um, you know, a lot of that is tied to being able to talk about this history of discrimination. As Erica mentioned, this is not new. We have been dealing with this for centuries. Um, We have, you know, so many instances of um, unfortunately, of laws that were passed specifically to exclude our communities. um, We are still dealing with stereotypes, whether it is the model minority myth or the perpetual, perpetual foreigner stereotype that people just do not see people who look like us as Americans, and that's problematic. And so... Uh, you know, in order to really get to the root cause of how do we actually address and stem the tide of anti-Asian bias and hate, we really do need to ensure that people are educated and aware of our communities, that we are, that they see us as Americans and um, as people who vibrantly contribute to this country with long histories in this country. And for me, of uh, someone who is, you know, both. Asian American, but also Native Hawaiian descent. There's a whole separate, um, you know, history that Native Hawaiians have faced in this country and Pacific Islanders and that is also not discussed, but also important for us to, con- you know, to discuss in terms of broader awareness and education um, about the contributions of our diverse Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities. Um, I also think that, you know, to Erica's point, we will see, I mean, this is not going to be forever. We need to, we really do, um, need to address this, this surge in anti-Asian hate. Um, and the president and vice president have made it very clear that they are strongly committed to doing that. As Erica mentioned earlier, I mean, within his first week in office, the president issued his presidential memorandum to condemn and combat xenophobia and racism against our communities. He's um, signed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. Um, he's done a number of things. But as you know, actually, I'm going to take this from Erica. She says often you can't legislate against hate. So you can't just by passing a law or condemning an action, change people's mindsets overnight. So again, we do know that there's, you know, again, things that we can do proactively through the federal government to address hate and prevention. But we also know that some of this is going to take, it's going to take time, we're going to have to really change hearts and minds. And that does not happen um, by the stroke of a pen, you know, by signing legislation, it's going to really require all of us coming together um, building that awareness, but also building um, again those coalitions that we had discussed. Um, making sure that we have allies who are going to speak up for us if they see um, something happening, if there's a you know a crime happening in front of them that we actually going to have bystanders who will be willing to speak up and um, not just turn the other way. And so I think again, a lot of that is raising awareness. It um, requires us to also be outspoken as a community, which I know is not always comfortable. But I think we have seen um, over the past two years, our community mobilized and um, really be vocal in ways we have not seen historically, and that is so important because if we're silent in the face of this violence and this hate, um, nothing's going to get done. So, again, it's been really critical to be able to report incidents of hate, be able to come together and collectively talk about our trauma, but also um, discuss ways that we can also heal together, and that is, I think, a big role that we are hoping to play through our, um, you know, through this administration and through the roles that Eric and I have, um, letting our communities know that we're not alone, that this this is not an isolated incident. There are um, issues that are... You know, impacting our communities, but it is so important that we talk about them and collectively work to address them and to know that they have allies in the federal government um, who are actively working to do that from the president and vice president to all of our federal officials. Um, and again, working very closely in coalition with um, our state and local uh, governments, but also with community leaders directly to address um, this, again, this, this uh, really tragic uptick in anti-Asian hate we have seen.
0: So let's talk about that. So there is... Um... You know, the hate crimes we see as an uptick, but we also think that they're all also maybe underreported as to actual what violence is actually occurring. Some of the hate crimes that are reported are dismissed by prosecutors or charging officials um, as actual hate crimes. They could be an outgrowth of mental health, whatever activity, whatever. What do we do to address the further victimization of people who are reporting crimes against themselves in the justice system?
3: So I think it's a combination of of two things. I mean, first of all, empowering the community leaders who are trusted by the community. Um, which is one of these new grant programs that's just coming online because we were finally able to get funding for it. It was authorized. It was um, a new program that um, Ms. Ming from New York City had put into the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, and what it does is it invests in community-based organizations, talking to community members in trusted ways. Um, I think the second piece is, is more so that, that's on the community side, um, because there is no trust. And I mean, we talk about building trust. We it's, it's, it's both building trust with law enforcement and scary, you know, government apparatuses, but it's also rebuilding because we've broken so much trust. Um, and so the, the underreporting, you know, really comes to two things. I mean, the, the first is the lack of training for a, a beat cop to be able to identify markup and then advance something that had, um, you know, I hate animus um, evidence so that it could be possibly pursued or possibly not as a hate crime. And if, you, if, if that beat cop doesn't do that or ignores or somebody is ashamed because they have been victimized, and this is a for real thing that, you know, I've actually labored under personally, too, is like the shame and embarrassment of being a victim and like having to give voice to it and talk to a stranger about it. That's really hard to do. It's
0: hard in the Asian community. The mental health component of stigma is really hard
3: or the fact that it's been so normalized that, you know, we used to call them microaggressions, they're aggressive aggressions, and, and they're having deadly consequences. Um, and, you know, that, that narrative, that feeling of, of shame and recalcitrance to be able to report it is reinforced even in, you know, in our allied spaces, too, because um, because we've treated it as normal or to brush it off or everything will be okay. It's not Okay, and so the so the training of law enforcement um, and the encouragement and finding out and determining and then implementing more culturally competent ways of building that reporting mechanism, that faith that the system does work and it works for us, um, is is part of the the build exercise that that we need to to dig into aggressively and intentionally.
1: Yeah, I'll just say, you know, I mean, echo everything that Erica said and then I, you know, especially when it comes to the training, um, that is where the federal government can play a role. And in in the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act that the president signed into law last year, actually, there is specific, um, you know, uh, there's a provision in there for training of uh, state and local law enforcement to ensure that they're able to better identify what a hate crime is we unfortunately till this day are we know that there's a large under reporting of hate crimes we have regularly um localities that report zero hate crimes every year when we know that is not that that cannot statistically be possible um so you know there's a lot of training that needs to happen and education and awareness of our own state and local law enforcement so that they're able to better um you know identify hate crimes and also to um uh, you know, meaningfully engage with those who are with our members of our community who are going to them um, with, you know, asking for help and wanting to report and and not wanting to be dismissed. And so um, and and to Erica's point too, ensuring that there's cultural competency as well as um, language access for our communities is really key. And that is something that the Department of Justice has prioritized, um, ensuring that. Not only can you report in English and Spanish, but also um, creating uh, the forms in multiple languages for the Asian American community um, because they know that, you know, again, oftentimes if you just go to a website or look at a form and if, if it's not accessible to our communities, there's no way to report that, especially for those who have um, language barriers that they are facing and for our limited English proficient communities. So that is something that we have really intentionally um, done through the Department of Justice, too, making sure that there is that cultural competency and that language access for our communities. I think Human Services has done a really
3: extraordinary Mm -hmm. job, too.
1: Absolutely. And, and on the mental health piece, absolutely. So, the President, in his State of the Union, has talked about mental health being a priority. And the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where um, our White House initiative is actually based, and it's co chaired by HHS Secretary Javier Becerra and U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Tai, um, you know, again, a big Part of the work we are doing is also to figure out how can we better address the stigma and um, ensure that we are able to collectively deal with this trauma that our communities have faced. And so, there have been a number of really great um, things being done. Secretary Becerra kicked off just last month a mental health uh, tour. Um, And as part of that, too, as we kind of hit that one year anniversary of the Atlanta spa murders, um, our White House initiative also held a series of virtual roundtables to to be able to share a number of resources from the federal government, both from the Department of Justice, but also from the Department of Health and Human Services on mental health. How do we um, strengthen, you know, uh, just Opportunities for our communities to be able to um, report mental health again with that cultural competency, with that language access that's needed. How do we talk about a lot of the trauma that we faced, you know? And so um, we were able to be able to we were able to share a number of resources from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Um, you know, there was three billion that was allocated in the American Rescue Plan funding specifically for mental health um, services and substance use block grants, and um, also. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services recently rolled out nearly $300 million to support the implementation and launch of um, a three-digit 988 National uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline that'll be happening. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing is as we're re-emerging from the pandemic, there have been, unfortunately, so many many crises our communities have faced, and so the need for mental health services is more important now than ever. And yet Asian Americans are... um, You know, just unfortunately, very rarely talk about mental health issues and utilize services. So that is something we're really trying to kind of break down that stigma and let people know it is okay to be able to access resources. And it is important that, you know, they get help, especially given the trauma that our communities have faced due to this rise in anti-Asian hate, the victimization, the lack of just really feeling safe and included in this country. And so um, that is something, again, we really want to make sure we are sharing those resources with Americans all across the country um, and hopefully able to break down some of those barriers that our communities face when it comes to accessing uh, mental health services.
3: Julian, do you mind if I pull two threads together?
0: You can, absolutely. Okay. This is uh, I I'm telling you, uh, we're running out of time, so I I'm I not going to be able to get to another question, I'll just, but I'll I would I would welcome you pulling I'll talk, the thread I'll
3: talk, together. I'll talk super quick. <laughs> um, I just I, I, and, and I don't want to close on 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 this somber note because it is somber times. I wanted to to lay out by pulling two threads about like, you know, can hate crimes ever be abated and what are the resources? I want to pivot our thinking to one of power and resilience in our community because that is what we have proven. We are not just victims. We're not just vulnerable. We're not just um, the scapegoat that's convenient. We're not just expendable. Look at what we've come through, how much we've been able to contribute as a collective community um, and where we're going to go. And, that, and that's, that was just the thread that I wanted to pull um, because that is something that I deeply believe in. I, I worry that um, you know, that we're reinforcing this idea of, of the perpetual victim when really I just, I, when we were in Atlanta, what I saw there was strength and power, not weakness and fragility. And, and that's, that's, that is the present and the future that we're working towards.
0: I can't think of a better way to end this. Um, I want to thank you, Crystal Ka'ai and Erica Moritsugu for taking the time to be here in San Francisco in person with us. It's been our great delight and pleasure and privilege to hear directly from you. Thank you for candidly sharing all the information that you've given us to us. I want to thank all of you for taking the time of your day to spend time with us. And for those of you online, thank you for spending time with us and for submitting your questions. I'm Julian Chang on behalf of the Commonwealth club. This program is now adjourned. Thank you.